Well, if you would, look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace in your Son and your mercies that are reflected in the raising up of countercultural missionaries who have denounced the American dream so that the nations might know you and your son. We thank you, Lord, for the Baileys. We pray you would provide for them. We pray that you would raise up prayer warriors. And we pray that you would raise up the funds they need to get on the ground. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in and through this family. We now thank you for the word of God. We pray that you would give us ears to hear this morning. We need the word of God today. We've heard all kinds of news this week on television. Lord, today we need to hear the good news, the only objective true news. Give us ears to hear it, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The term typhoid Mary entered the American lexicon in the year 1908 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. That term today refers to anyone who intentionally or unintentionally passes on or spreads a disease to others. The typhoid Mary originally referred to a specific person. Her name was Mary Milan. She was from Ireland, and she came here in the 1880s, an immigrant to New York City, where she became, and she was known as a, a remarkable chef, a cook for well-to-do, wealthy families in New York City. And yet, medical specialists began to note something very haunting about Mary. Every place she worked, every family that she cooked for, members of that family would contract typhoid fever. And many of them would die. Mary was asymptomatic and denied this notion that illnesses and deaths were connected to her. Eventually, Mary was investigated, officially investigated, and and quarantined for three years at a New York clinic. And upon her release, she agreed to stop cooking for families, though there are some who say that she continued to do that under an alias name. She became a laundress. But as a laundress, the same patterns continued to be seen. And so she was quarantined in the year 1915 and was quarantined until she died 23 years later. Quarantined for 23 years. You know, forced quarantines are not unusual in medical history. But our pandemic has introduced a new kind of relative term, self-quarantine, social distancing. And and this has had 
many predictable consequences. Some would say they were unpredictable, but we as the people of God know that they were predictable. Feelings of, of re rejection and, and isolation and, and depression and fear and, and even paranoia can develop when you're isolated for a long period of time. So far, in our text, as we approach 2 Samuel 19, we've seen King David experience something kind of like a self-quarantine, but something more horrific than any quarantine. This is a self-imposed exile. He was forced to flee Jerusalem. We've seen that in previous texts, which also meant he could not take part in corporate worship at the temple and in the palace court. He was exiled. And the reason he was exiled was because of a rebellion led by his own son, Absalom. And so he was self-exiled in order to save Jerusalem. If he had not fled Jerusalem, it would have been chaos. There would have been many deaths. So he was self-exiled to save his people. But as we saw last week, Absalom, the son of David, was hung on a tree. And we saw that there was an intentional connection. That term hung is only found one other place, Deuteronomy 21, 23, where it says... Cursed are those who are hung on a tree. So there's an intentional connection there. And the son of David was hung, cursed if you will, on the tree. And by his death, we're seeing that the true king and the people of God who follow him will experience a new exodus and the renewal of the kingdom of God. All right? But as always, with the kingdom of God, until the consummation, there will be conflicts. There will be warfare, spiritual warfare. We should never be shocked when it happens. In fact, this text is unique in that it begins with a conflict concerning the king, and then it ends with a conflict concerning the king. It's kind of like bookends for this text. And, and so in verses 1 to 15, we see the conflict concerning the king. Notice with me in verse 1. Now, last time we saw David has just found out that his son Absalom has been killed, hung on the tree, and he's grieving. He continues to grieve as this chapter opens up. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. That's what, he, that's what they heard. They had, just, they had just risked their lives. They had, they had followed the king at great sacrifice. And now all they're hearing about is, this, is their king grieving for his insurrectionist son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So what does that mean? That means that they're humiliated because their victory 
was the cause of his grief. They, they feel like he is thankless. And so they stole into the city like a, a thief or like a deserter at wartime. And the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now notice in verse 5, this does not sit well with Joab. And it certainly hasn't sat well with the people. And Joab comes to him as the voice of the people. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and the concubines. Keep in mind, and this is how you read Samuel, it's how you read the Kings, how you read the Chronicles, that we have this promise driving everything. It's 2 Samuel 7, that there's a son coming. And this son from David is the hope of the world. We know that even from 2 Samuel 19, where this, there's a Torah for Adam. There's a, this, this will be for all mankind, this, this son who will come and bring salvation. And so that's what Samuel's about. There's a son coming, and it's clear that David is not the one that is promised. So he points us to the one who's coming, but he's certainly not the one. So notice in verse 6, he says, Because you love those who hate you, and hate those who love you, for you have made it clear today that the commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Verse 7, Now therefore arise, go out, and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. You think you've been through some trials. You think you've been through some struggles. If you don't deal rightly with this, what you're about to go through will be worse than all that you have experienced. Now, to David's credit, at this point, he responds rightly to Joab. Notice in verse 8. Then the king arose, took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So sitting in the gate means that he is past his grieving, his public grieving at least, and now he is about to carry on his responsibilities as king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Now Israel here refers to the northern tribes. Keep in mind, there was always tension between the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. There was always tension. All right? In fact, we will see them split in the year 931, about 170 years after this. And so there was always tension between these two tribes. And Israel here refers to those northern tribes who had followed Absalom in his rebellion. Chapter 15, verse 13. And so when he died, what did they do? We saw in chapter 18, verse 17, that they fled. 
And now life is very complicated for them. You know, when you revolt against the king, when you rebel against the king, your life gets very complicated. It just complicates, it messes everything up. Why? Because as we read this morning, we were created for the king. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so when you rebel against the king, life gets really messy. Now notice in verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. So they, they have followed Absalom. Absalom, didn't, Absalom did not end up being the king they thought he was. And it says, they were saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. They're reflecting back on what David had accomplished for them. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? They recognize that David now is the true king. And so the death of their Messiah replacement. Now, why do I say Messiah replacement? That word Messiah in Hebrew is the anointed one, right? And so David was their Messiah. He was the one anointed as their king, and they had replaced him. We do that all the time. When we look to other things other than our Christ for our hope, our identity, our worth, our significance, our pleasure, our happiness, well, the death of their Messiah replacement had now focused their minds. It tends to do that, doesn't it? When you realize that the idols cannot deliver on what they promised and so his allure, he had the beautiful hair, he looked like a stately king. The promises that he had made, they had died along with him. They had been buried along with him, along with all the hopes that accompanied what he had promised. And it's only at this point that they were open to the true king. That's generally how it works. We are idolaters to the core. We are false worshipers by nature. And generally, it's not until we come to recognize that what the world offers and what the idols offer is fool's goal, that we are now opened to following and submitting to the true king. And so in light of Absalom's death, the question arose, how do we secure favor with the true king. We are rebels. We are known to be insurrectionists. We are not worthy of his favor. How do we secure favor with this king? And I believe this is analogous to our predicament with our king. Having offended his holiness by rebellion and sin and treachery and self-love and idolatry, we come to that place by the Spirit where we ask, how do we gain favor? And here we see it starts with the king himself. Notice in verse 11, and King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Remember, he had, he had sent them back into Jerusalem to serve Absalom as his ears on the ground. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house. 
when the word of all Israel has come to the king. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And so he is pleading with his own tribe to be the first to be reconciled. And say to Amasa, who is his nephew, but who was also serving Absalom, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you're not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Now, why do you think he wants to replace Joab? Joab is a mighty warrior, but he's the one thing in David's life he can't control. And most recently, Joab had killed his own son, Absalom. And we're going to see next week he's not done with his treachery. And so he replaces Joab with a Mesa here. Um, but I believe that what you see here is a picture the good news of our greater son of David, I believe, is mirrored in this mercy from David. For even though these insurrectionists' mouths had all been stopped, to use Romans 3 language, and they recognized their guilt before the king, this king takes the initiative in restoring them to the kingdom of God. Isn't that beautiful? And notice in uh, verse... 14, I love this, and he swayed, he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. That almost sounds like Ephesians, doesn't it? He swayed their heart as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. Again, the text is preparing us for a greater king to come. You cannot read the rest of the Old Testament without regard for the promise in 2 Samuel 7. It becomes the table of contents for the rest of the Old Testament. When is the sun coming? When is this king coming? And we're seeing shadows of it in David. And so in God's providence, David foreshadows God's grace for sinners in his greater son to come. Because we have separated ourselves from God. We, we are without hope in the world. We have broken his law. And we are in need of having our uh, favor restored. And the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. And having swayed our hearts through his priest. Isn't that interesting? Their hearts were swayed as the king sends the priest to bring the, forth the good news. David now calls these insurrectionists to respond in faith. And note verse 15. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now, let me just say this, you can trust your English Bible. Our translations today are, are incomparable and second to none. But there are some things you cannot pick up in the English Bible. And that's why 
We listen to preachers and we listen to teachers just to supplement those places where the English cannot do, you know, full service to the original language. That verb there, to bring over, bring the king over, you're going to find that verb 15 times in verses 15 to 41. Now, when a verb is used that often, it's intended by the reader for the reader to take note. It becomes an emphasis. You can't, you can't see it, though, in English. You just have to trust me on this. That verb is found 15 times in verses 15 to 41. Now, what's interesting is that when David was making his way out of Jerusalem, fleeing his son, and he was going into self-imposed exile, that verb was used nine times in chapter 15, verses 18 to 33. So that was a kind of reverse exodus. This is a picture. This verb portrays a true exodus. An exodus out of exile back into the land, back into the kingdom of God. Now what's interesting is that verb is found 22 times in Joshua 3 and 4. Of course, if you know your Bible, you know in Joshua 3 and 4, that's when Israel went over, crossed over the Jordan into the promised land. That's a picture of the ultimate exodus, right? Or the exodus that they experienced in, under the old covenant. And so this is an exodus. This is exodus language. The king is crossing over. He's coming into the land, the kingdom of God. In fact, what's remarkable here is he comes into Gilgal. Notice in verse 15 again. And they came to Gilgal. Now, why is that important? That is not an arbitrary place. That was the very place when Joshua led. What is Joshua's Hebrew name? Jesus, right? Uh, his Greek name would be Jesus. Joshua led the people of God across the Jordan, out of the wilderness, into the land of promise, and the place they landed was Gilgal. And why is it named Gilgal? Well, Joshua 5 tells us. God said in Joshua 5, 9, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of the place is called Gilgal. The word means removing the reproach away. All right? And so... This was essentially the same offer being made by David. The reproach is being rolled away in a place called Gilgal. You think symbols matter? They matter. And this is a picture of corporate revival. People who recognize their need for mercy and the triumph of the king. And God's mercy in the king. And it sways their hearts. That's beautiful. That's the verb. Swayed their hearts. Now at this point, we're going to see three cameos of people which illustrate this. All right? And so we see the citizens who are now committed to the king. Notice in verse 16. Shimei, the son of Gera. You remember him? He caused chaos a while back. 
the Benjaminite from Baharim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. He hurried. Now, David's victory and David's return is bringing great concern to those who have openly defied him. And this man, Shimei, was number one. He was the one who had publicly cursed David. Remember that? He had publicly, he had thrown stones at David and his people. He had called him a worthless person. And, and notice in verse 17, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Now, this is not a threat. He is trying to demonstrate, commentators believe, that he, he pulls a lot of sway with people. He's trying to convince David to, to be merciful with him. And, and yet he's not the only one who needs reconciliation with the king. Notice in the second part of verse 17. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. So Shimei had publicly cursed the king. And Ziba was the one who came and lied to the king about Mephibosheth. He, he told the king, Mephibosheth uh, is seeking an insurrection back in Jerusalem. And David had given Ziba all of Mephibosheth's land and goods. And so Ziba, it appears at this point, who has lied, who has betrayed Mephibosheth, is now very paranoid. You know, Proverbs 28 says, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. When you live in rebellion to the king, paranoia is one of the great fruits. It's one of the great fruits. That's where Ziba is. Now notice in verse 18. And they crossed the Lord, or the Ford, to bring over, there's that verb, the king's household, and to do his pleasure. I love that. To do the king's pleasure. That is the life of faith. And Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. He wants forgiveness. So he confesses his sin. He recognizes that David is his only hope for salvation. For your servant, verse 20, knows that I have sinned. That is a, a miracle when someone confesses that. In our culture, guys, we know this. In our culture, the problem is outside of us. In America right now, it's oppressive structures that are the problem. That's absolutely nonsense. The problem is the heart. The problem is sin. My sin, I am my biggest problem. There's no way you can be my biggest problem. I'm my biggest problem. And that's where I believe Shimei has gotten. I have sinned. Now, many are unimpressed with Shimei. 
They, they believe he's just trying to, to save his hide here. They believe this is just self-preservation. But I believe that his repentance is real. Now, why do I say that? I, it's not just me being sentimental here. Those are the same, that's the same line that David had used when Nathan confronted him with his sin. I have sinned. And we know that David's repentance was real. I believe this is real repentance. And remember, David didn't repent until he was busted. He didn't repent until Nathan confronted him. And so this man doesn't repent until he recognizes the king I've been following was an imposter. David is the true king after all. I believe that's where he is. And remember, David had been forgiven. Nathan had told him that the Lord has put away your sin. I believe Shimei is converted here. Of course, he had cursed the Lord's ruler. And Exodus 22 tells us that the, the wages of cursing the Lord's ruler is death. He deserved death. And there's someone who recognized that. Notice in verse 21. Abishai, remember him? He's the guy I'm not supposed to like. But I have such a great fondness for him. Abishai, the son of Zeruai, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. Earlier, he had recommended the removal of Shimei's head. As I said, he had noted through his life experience that people who are beheaded do not curse their kings. But I thought about this this, uh, this week. All of us struggle with Abishaiism. What is Abishaiism? We note certain people who have committed such heinous sins that we believe they don't deserve forgiveness. We don't believe they've actually changed. And in so doing, we are undermining what grace can do. We are undermining what the king has accomplished for sinners. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. And so we all struggle with that. I mean, there are some people I would say, in my flesh, deserves forgiveness more than other people. That is just, that is just a failure to understand the glory of the gospel. None of us deserve forgiveness. And so Abishai here believes this man does not deserve forgiveness. He deserves to die. But David had, had come to experience, right? He knew experientially about mercy. Generally, the most uh, gracious people in the body of Christ are the people who most recognize their need for grace. Their need for mercy. Self-righteous people in the body of Christ reflect a pride. A pride that says, I actually, I, I'm upright and God forgave me because I'm so upright. Well, that's not where David is. David is a vessel of mercy because he received such remarkable mercy. Now notice in verse 22. But David said, what have I do to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? That's his sister. These are his nephews, right? 
that you should this day be as an adversary to me. That word there is the word Satan. You should be a Satan to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I, that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So David not only sp- promised to spare Shimei, but he confirmed his promise with an oath. What, what the king is doing here, remember this is pointing us to one greater. He's implementing, praise God for that, that's why we're here today, a policy of mercy over his renewed and restored kingdom. And this policy of mercy is one that forgives sinners who repent and commit to the king. Now that's not mercy to everyone. This isn't universalism. It's only to those who come to the end of themselves and confess and repent of their sins and commit to the king. He's implementing this policy of mercy. And at this point, an earlier recipient of mercy approached him. I love this. Verse 24. And Mephibosheth. Remember the one, chapter 9, who now gets to eat at the king's table, though he was lame in both feet? And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. The last time we heard about him, Ziba had lied about him. Ziba said, Mephibosheth is planning this insurrection against you. That was a lie. In fact, Mephibosheth's appearance reflected that. Mephibosheth had stayed in Jerusalem where Absalom was ruling and he had publicly risked danger by grieving David's exile. Dale Ralph Davis says this, his disheveled appearance showed that he had forced himself to share David's exile in spirit. That's why he is disheveled. He is publicly Sharing David's exile in spirit. Now notice in verse 25. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? In other words, why didn't you go with me when I left? He answered, My lord, O king, my servants deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. So it appears that Ziba had told him that he was going to get him a a donkey to ride, and he never did it. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king, now notice the language of my lord the king. You're going to see it five times. This is devotion. My lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. What grace does, it humbles you. When you see professing believers who exalt themselves, they've either not experienced grace or they've gotten over it. Grace informs this man's attitude about everything. He says, you set your servant among those who eat at your table. I didn't deserve that. 
What further right have I than to cry to the king? And so he is still overcome by the fact that this king brought him to the table. Notice in verse 29. The king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. He seems convinced. You and Ziba shall divide the land. Now why would he divide the land with Ziba? Remember Ziba had brought goods to David. Even though Ziba had died, Ziba had repented. And now he is dividing the provisions or the, the goods. And so as a reflection of gospel-informed humility, I love this, Mephibosheth, the great recipient of mercy, says this in verse 30. One of my favorite lines in Samuel. Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all. He can have it all. It reminds me of the woman who was debating with another woman about a baby who had been born. And Samuel said, "Just we'll, we'll, we'll cut that baby in half. And the true mother said, you can, she can have her. She can have the baby. This demonstrates, listen to this, oh, let him take it all. Since my Lord the King has come safely home. You know when people are walking in grace. You know it. And you know it when they're not. This is a man whose life is overcome with mercy and grace. Humility is his song. It's beautiful here. It's amazing deference. You know, created things aren't meant to be enjoyed in and of themselves. God has given us the created order, okay, to enjoy. But created things are not intended to be enjoyed in and of themselves. They are intended to be used to enrich our love for our king. All right? And as long as we order our lives so that we can enjoy our king by using created things in the service of our love for the king, then that's the way God designed it. The problem is that in our natural state, I know in my natural state, and I have a feeling in your natural state, we do the opposite. We enjoy created things, and then we seek to use the king to amplify our enjoyment of created things. It's just the, way, just the opposite of the way it should be. We enjoy our king, and we, enjoy, we use the created things to enhance our enjoyment of the king. Well, that's where Mephibosheth was. Mercy had changed him. It had changed the final visitor, too. Notice in verse 31. We're going to get through this. Now, Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogelin, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man. Don't take this personally, some of you, 80 years old. If you're 80 or older, the writer on the inspiration of the Spirit says you are an aged person. I didn't say that. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mayanam. For we, he was a very wealthy man. You know, the older we get, and you've made this observation, older people either get 
softened by grace or hardened by life. Old people don't just stay where they are. You get softened by grace the older you get, or you get hardened by this broken world. This man was 80, and he had been softened by the grace and the glory of the king. It had, his old age had only fostered greater love for the king. Furthermore, he was wealthy, but he, it had not made him proud. It had not made him greedy. Verse 33. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me, and I will provide for you with me or in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the, the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Jimim, which is probably his son. Let him go over with my lord the king. And do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Timon shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Now what's remarkable, this as a side, just to show you how the Bible, there's no, the Bible could not have been, been written by mere man, all right? 400 years later, and you can see a cross-reference, if, you, if you'll notice in your Bible, there's likely a cross-reference to Jeremiah 41, verse 17. 400 years later, Jeremiah writes about this man named Johanan and all the leaders of the forces who went and stayed at the habitation of Chimam, which is by Bethlehem. They went and stayed in a city that's named Chimam. What that signals to us is that David had been faithful to his promise to take care of Barzillai's servant, his son. Isn't that beautiful? 400 years later. This is evidence of David's fidelity to his promise. And listen, that's not just a historical note for us. He is pointing us to a greater king who is faithful to his promises. Listen to this. In, in this chaotic world that we live, John 14... If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you will be also. As David the flawed king was faithful to his promise, Jesus the greater king will be faithful and is faithful to his promises. Notice in verse 39, Then all the people went over the Jordan, the king went over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. We're going to close in just a minute here. But all is not well. We're going to see more of this next week. All is not well. Notice in verse 40. Conflicts concerning the kingdom. Let's not be shocked by conflicts with regard to the kingdom of God. Alright? We should not be shocked by it. But what we need to see in the midst of it is that cannot thwart the kingdom of God. Verse 40, we'll close here. The king went on to Gilgal. Timam went on with him. 
all the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel. So not all is well. Only half of Israel's following him. They brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. It just sounds like kids fighting. Jealousy, immaturity, carnality. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. You only have ten, two shares, we have ten. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. It ends in a negative light, doesn't it? We'll pick that up in chapter 20. But let me bring, draw one positive point out of this that I think is relevant to our time. The kingdom of God must truly be the kingdom of God or it would have already self-destructed with people like this in the kingdom. And that's true of Christ's church as well. Listen to these words from Dale Ralph Davis. How often on any given week, he used to be a pastor, I used to marvel that a congregation ever survived between petty bickering and flagrant sins, between hurt feelings and asinine stubbornness, between trivial priorities and tragic apathies. And yet it seemed that the fragmenting tendencies of human folly were always overcome by the glue of divine grace. Surely Jesus is building his church, or it would have vanished long ago. Amen. Overcome by the glue of divine grace. You see, neither conflicts from within or wars from without can dissolve or weaken that glue. Now, why do I say that? Because that glue is rooted, grounded, and secured by the exodus of the king. By the exodus of the king. You know, remarkably, at Jesus' transfiguration, just before Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem to die, Peter, James, and John had this amazing experience to see Jesus in his transfigured state in a conversation with Moses and Elijah. You don't lose your identity, by the way, when you die. They were still Moses and Elijah. I hope you like your name. <laughs> You're going to have it for eternity. And so he's listening to this conversation. They are. And here's what they heard. They spoke, that is, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah spoke of his departure. You know that word in Greek? Exodus. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He was about to accomplish an exodus. Now, what is this referring to? Well, first of all, a reverse exodus of exile. 
just as David experienced. Isaiah 53, he was cut off, verse 8, from the land of the living. That's exile. Isaiah is prophesying about this one who would be cut off from the land of the living. He would experience an exile from the Father, stricken for the transgressions of his people. Just as David experienced and underwent this reverse exodus for the salvation of his people, this one will be stricken for the transgressions of his people, cut off out of the land of the living. And seen this way, Jesus' resurrection from the grave and his ascension to the Father was an exodus from that exile. And that's why Paul can use that language of the exodus and exodus in Colossians 1 where he says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness by transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus' exodus is our exodus. Jesus' exodus is our exodus. We, who are the former Shimeis, the former Zebas, the former Mephibosheths, we are now Barzillais who now live out of gratitude for what our king has accomplished for us. And because Jesus' exodus is definitive and it is final, it is the ground of our hope. So no matter what news channel you watch, it's not the true news unless they're talking about the kingdom of God expressed in Jesus Christ. Someone texted me this week and said, I can't even watch the news. It's so hopeless. Of course it is, because it's only partial news. The true news is communicated every Sunday morning from the Word of God. This is the kingdom that cannot fail. One day the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, which means we have all the hope in the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for our greater king's exodus from exile. Not the exile of, from his sin or his sin, but his exile for our sin. Thank you for delivering him from exile by his resurrection from the grave. May that encourage every believer here this morning. May it foster the kind of spirit that Mephibosheth had and Barzillai had. May we be known as people of grace and gratitude. Lord, if there's any here today that have trusted in Jesus, pray that today they, they would trust in him. They would turn from their false messiahs, their Absaloms in the world, recognizing that Absalom brings no hope. And I pray that they would turn to the true King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.